This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the CBS News of the World from the morning of October 26th, 1942. It includes updates on the war from New York, London, Cairo, Moscow, and Washington. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. Here are the highlights of the biggest news received up to 8 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Monday, October 26th. Imperial 8th Army holds its gains in Western Desert. Major tank battle imminent. Russians ward off new German assaults in Stalingrad, gain more ground to the northwest. United States bombers raid Hong Kong twice from China bases. Buying fortresses destroy more Jap shipping in southwest Pacific. Now here is Jay Sims. Before calling in London, here are the latest reports from General MacArthur's headquarters. His latest communique tells of another heavy attack by our flying fortresses on the big Jap base at Rabaul, New Britain. Shipping again was the target and a Jap gunboat was sunk, while three medium-sized merchantmen were badly damaged. That's a total of 100,000 tons sunk or damaged by the fortresses there in the last three days. In addition to the attacks on shipping, the big bomber set fires along the dock area that were visible for 100 miles. While the fortresses struck at Rabaul, other Allied planes raided New Ireland, bombing fuel dumps and an airdrome. One four-engined enemy plane was destroyed on the ground, and all our planes returned safely despite heavy anti-aircraft fire. Northwest of Australia, Hudson medium bombers attacked the Koprong airfield on Timor Island. Grounded Jap planes were bombed and many fires were started. Now for our reports from overseas, we hear first this morning from the British capital. We take you to CBS London, Bill Downs reporting. Authoritative British quarters in London said this morning that the next 48 hours or so should decide whether the first moves in the 8th Army's new Egyptian campaign have met with immediate success. In other words, London is not acclaiming any premature victories or hailing any advanced successes in North Africa. However, this does not mean that there is any sign of pessimism in informed quarters here. On the contrary, the feeling is more optimistic about North Africa than at any time since General Wavell first advanced across Libya two years ago. Authoritative circles here, studying the front reports after three days fighting, agree that thus far General Alexander's attack has struck no major snag. And London likes the careful tone of the communique. These quarters warned, however, that hard fighting could be expected to continue. They also pointed out that victory is not cheap in a frontal offensive. And it is a frontal offensive that forms the major action on the African front. Allied casualties can be expected. It is interesting to note that at no time since the North African offensive began has the British or anyone else called the fighting in Egypt a second front. Russia long ago rejected the suggestion that a campaign in North Africa would give her the kind of second front relief she was looking for. 
Russia wants a second front which will directly threaten Germany's position in Europe and force Hitler to withdraw troops from around Leningrad, Moscow, Stalingrad, and from the Caucasus. The Russian view is that the North African campaign is more of an offensive against Italy than anything else. However, a new development from the RAF attacks on northern Italy is causing some interesting speculation here. It is evident from the reports of the crews which attacked Genoa and Milan over the weekend that the Italian air defenses, both ACAC and defending fighters, are exceedingly weak. If the British bombers continue to attack Italy in such force, and there is no reason to believe that they will stop, then it is likely that Italy would call on Germany to furnish more adequate air defenses. This would, of course, not constitute the kind of relief the Russians want, but every little bit helps, and it is at least a start. And now for the latest reports from the Egyptian fighting front, I take you to CBS Cairo. The Eighth Army was battering hard at German defenses on the entire 40-mile length of the twisting Alamein front yesterday in the heaviest concentration of bomb and mortar and exploding shell that has ever been witnessed in the western desert. In some sectors, our forces have pushed decisively forward, tearing gaps in the first and then the second line of the enemy's thickly sown net of minefields. But further defenses remain ahead, and these must still be broken before the full weight of our powerful striking force can be flung against the enemy's armor. In other sectors, our initial attacks were less decisive. Yesterday saw brief, sporadic clashes between tanks, but as yet, we have not met the main concentration of Rommel's senses. Before the fighting can become in any sense decisive, our advance under the terrific protective fire of our guns must force a breach so that our mass armor can follow after. Yesterday, the 8th Army consolidated, moved its heavy guns forward in preparation for the next plunge. RAF light bombers whipped low over German troops and transport to prevent them from concentrating for possible counterattacks. Rommel's ground forces were scattered by our bombs and cannon fire, while our fighter patrols fought up swarms of Messerschmitt. The Luftwaffe was much more active yesterday than on the opening day of the new battle, but despite its interference, Allied air forces lost only one plane over the battle area. Shortly after sunup, the first fighter mission of the American Desert Air Task Force tackled six Messerschmitt 109s, and without loss to themselves, shot four of them down in flames. Credited with the victories in this dawn kill are Major Clement Wheeler of San Antonio, Captain Clay Bilby of Skidmore, Missouri, Second Lieutenant William Beck of Nashville, and Second Lieutenant Lyman Middleditch, Jr. of Union, New Jersey. Long-range fighters of the RAF had a big day hunting for enemy shipping down the African coast. They roared in over a merchant ship near Tobruk, left both ship and his sporting destroyer smoking, and shot down two Junker 88s and a Dornier 24. Later, they returned to the kill with a South African light bomber formation. And with a salvo of bombs flat on it, the transport ship blew up in a single shattering explosion and disappeared. Soon later, long-range fighters encountered 33 troop-carrying Junker 52 nosing along southward under heavy Messerschmitt escort. Greatly outnumbered, the British fighters drove to attack, knocked four Junkers into the Mediterranean and damaged many more. Allied warplanes downed a total of 15 enemy craft yesterday against the loss of only three of their own. This is Winston Burdett in Cairo, returning you to CBS in New York.
Next, for the news from the Soviet capital, we take you to CBS Moscow. Walter Kerr reporting. The news from Stalingrad today can be summed up in one brief sentence. Yesterday, the Germans managed to get control of two streets, and during the night, they fought their way through to the outskirts of one factory. In other words, they didn't accomplish very much. We heard today something about Russian reserves that are being brought up from across the Volga into the city. Usually, they cross the river at night. They see the ruins of buildings through the red light of smoldering fires. They hear the screech of mortar bombs and the hiss of flying shells. The flaming bursts light up the streets and sidewalks, showing men and women huddled for protection against the walls. The reserves march through toward the outskirts, up to a command post, which is usually a dugout lighted with the flickering flame of a half-burnt candle. Their documents are checked, and then the men get two days of special training. But no matter how much experience the troops have had in the field, street fighting has its own characteristics. It requires special training. Russian officers figure that two days is about enough. In that time, the reserves dig trenches, grow accustomed to shell fire, inspect damaged German tanks and discover their vulnerable spots. Of even more importance is a close study of the battle area. New men must know the nearby streets, which houses are still standing, which ones are held by the Germans, and which ones are held by their own side. They must know the backyards, the cellars, the alleys, where the trenches run, where the minefields are. Every man has got to know these things in street fighting, for often the man fights alone, away from his friends, or with only a few others to help him. They say that it takes two days to learn all this, and in the same period of time, a soldier learns whether a shell will pass over his head or explode nearby. That it's safer to duck under dive bombing than to run. That when hiding to escape dive bombers, it's better to keep your eyes open. Otherwise, you might get a bayonet or a bullet in the back. For the Germans attack about the time the dive bombers come. The Russians have been bringing reserves into the city now for weeks, giving them their two days special training, then putting them into the line. They come from across the Volga, into burning Stalingrad. On the way, they pass the wounded, coming out to field hospitals. And their coming is another reason why Stalingrad is still held by the Red Army. Why yesterday, after 24 hours of fighting, the Germans got control of only two streets and reached the outskirts of only one factory. This is Walter Kerr, returning you now to Columbia in New York. And that was Moscow. Now for the news from our own nation's capital, we take you to CBS Washington, John Purcell reporting. The Japanese have launched their offensive on land to recapture Guadalcanal. This time, the enemy is not just feeling out our lines. They're attacking with tanks and heavy artillery. The latest Navy communique reports that the Japs started swinging their heavy punches last Friday night. Their strategy was to turn our western flank, but Army and Marine troops broke up four enemy thrusts. The next morning, U.S. airmen, aided by artillery fire, threw back another Jap drive. However, despite the incessant pounding that the Jap fleet is taking, they managed to land additional reinforcements on the island. Meanwhile, the skies and the seas in the vicinity of Guadalcanal are filled with bursting shell fragments. The Japs are doing their utmost to knock out the airfield on the island. So far, they haven't succeeded. And our airmen are carrying on intensive attacks against the far-flung Jap fleet, desperately trying to keep communication lines open to troops on Guadalcanal. 
Last Thursday night, U.S. bombers swept out from an unnamed base and poured their explosives onto a concentration of Jap ships in the nearby Shortland Island area. The returns were excellent. One light cruiser, one destroyer, and either a heavy cruiser or battleship damaged. All of our planes returned. The next morning, the Japs retaliated. Sixteen bombers and 20-0 fighters swooped over the field at Guadalcanal. All of the fighters and one bomber were shot out of the air. No report was made of our damage to our installations. This is the last reported aerial attack on the field. It's a thorn in the side of the Japanese high command and still gives us aerial supremacy in the fierce struggle. Saturday night, our airmen again spotted a Jap task force about 300 miles northeast of Guadalcanal. One cruiser was reported probably damaged by a torpedo. The next day, dive bombers operating from the airfield came upon a task force of cruisers and destroyers near Florida Island, which is about 13 miles north of Guadalcanal. One cruiser was damaged and the fleet withdrew. This is John Purcell in Washington returning you to CBS in New York. Chile's new foreign minister, Joaquin Fernandez, took up his duties today as mass meetings sponsored by the Democratic parties and organized labor called for an immediate break with the Axis. At the same time, it's reported from the Chilean interior that police have launched a campaign against German espionage activities and have arrested four or five Axis residents. Fernandez was sworn in yesterday in Santiago, where 10,000 persons are said to have taken part in an anti-Axis demonstration yesterday. And that's the story from Latin America. Now to round out this morning's news picture, here's the story of another American air success in the Pacific War. Bombers of our Air Force in China early today carried out their second strong attack on Jap-held Hong Kong in two days. General Stilwell, commander of the Allied forces in China, reveals that much damage was caused in the latest attack. The North Point power station was destroyed. Earlier, long stretches of docks were blown up, shipping was hit, and warehouses were destroyed. The size of the raiding forces is not disclosed, but ten Jap fighters that attempted to intercept the first squadron were shot down. We lost one bomber and one fighter in the two operations. American bombers were also active on another sector of the China front today, bombing the White Cloud Airdrome outside of Canton. Defensively, American aircraft scored successes in China, too. Stillwell announces that six fighters intercepted 20 Jap Zero and 145 fighters in southern Yunnan province yesterday. Two Zeros and one other enemy plane were destroyed, and four Jap fighters were listed as probably destroyed. All our planes returned safely. Jap scout planes twice flew over Chongqing yesterday, but there was no air raid. Columbia's correspondents once again have reported the latest news direct by Transoceanic Shortwave Radio. This morning you heard from Bill Downs in London, Winston Burdett in Cairo, Walter Kerr in Moscow, and John Purcell in Washington. Jay Sims reporting for CBS World News. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System.